Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori, today. It's a Brother, Brother podcast. Today, we're talking Britpop. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk about Britpop. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are come, well, coming off of a, uh, a rather extensive discussion of American music, uh, as in uh, 14 episodes of uh, the Greatest American Band Bracket Challenge. Um, I was uh, happy to, to discover that Pitchfork um, has put out its list of 50 best Britpop albums uh, Ever, I guess of you know there was a limited period of time, but the best uh, fifty best Britpop albums, and it was a, a welcome reprieve to start talking about music from another country. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, you know after wrapping ourselves in American flags and, and going to battle for uh, the greatest American band, it was very refreshing to read about our friends over on the other side of the pond, and, and then a, a period of music that I know. Where they were wrapping themselves in their own flag. Um, yeah, exactly. And then I and when you're a huge fan of and know a lot about, and and I happen to be uh, in sort of prime music listening um, age myself. So, um, well, it's funny when I was reading this list, I you know I, I sort of uh, I you know I think back to the '90s, you know, living in New York, and I was you know. Uh, I don't think it occurred to me until I took a look at this list, really, how dominant uh, this genre of music or this period of music was, you know, in within my own collection. You know, it was back when you owned CDs and you had, you know, walls full of them, shelves full of them. And, um, the, you know, Britpop for about, you know, three, four years just completely dominated what I listened to. Um, and it wasn't conscious. I You know, it, it really wasn't. It didn't feel... Um, like I was an acolyte or some sort of adherent to, you know, a movement. It just was the music that I liked at the time. Um, seems silly not to have made that realization. Um, but in the moment it didn't feel, I I think like most movements, it didn't feel like a movement. Um, and 20 years on, you can look back and be like, yeah, obviously that was, uh, that was a, that was a thing. Well, and and Uh, that's kind of the confusing part to me. And, and, you know, I will say that you did have a a heavy dose of, of the albums, certainly the albums that, that Pitchfork listed on the top 50 exposed me to a lot of Britpop as did alternative radio at the time and, and MTV 120 minutes and the other college radio outlets that I, I used to go to. And I, I don't remember you donning a bucket hat or, or you know, creeper. So I think you were, uh, you were no. definitely, um, I left the park of zip halfway down exactly. in the winter. Yourself, uh, during that period. But it was, it was a, a grouping of music that I sort of pushed back on that you, you know, as we talk about on this pod, um, and, and kind of the theme of the pod is, is sort of our, our relationship through music and, and sharing music. Obviously, there's the old, uh, older brother, Wyndham being that, um, you know, kind of pushing music onto the younger brothers and vice versa. But at the time, you know, I think I was very steeped in, uh, you know, we'll say American indie rock and had kind of found my own sort of world of, in American indie rock of pavement and guided by voices and archers of loaf and bands like that. And, and to hear this kind of 
shiny, clean, um, or, or how I perceived it at the time, um, well-produced Britpop come over and, and being told that these were the greatest bands in the world, um, I took offense. But I, uh, I also, looking at this list, kind of determined that, like, God, I don't know that I know what the F Britpop <laughs> Brit Brit is. And, and, and as you guys, listeners, know that occasionally we do do an educational pod. Um, one recent one was on New Wave and post-punk. And today I decided, you know, Wyndham being an expert on Britpop or, or having a, at least a definition of Britpop, um, I'm going to ask him, when what the fuck is Britpop? Well, it's funny you should ask. Um, it, you know, the more I looked at the, the list and the more I sort of thought about it, there a couple of things um, sort of crossed my mind, which is um, one on the personal and one on the, on the sort of uh, scene as a larger whole. Um, when it comes to this kind of music, it wasn't, I don't feel like I ever was like really a proselytizer in this front. I don't feel like I was running home telling you to listen to any of this stuff or, or seeing if you were listening to it. It was just like what I was listening to. Um, you know, so it never, like, I, I never felt, um, strongly in the same way, I guess because it was, it was relatively popular and, uh, pervasive. I didn't, I don't think I felt like I needed to spoon feed this to anybody else, um, and, uh, but that said, I think the, the larger thing that I re- recognized when I, when I looked down is how concentrated the time frame was on this. Um, you know, when I think back, uh, like I said, living in New York, seeing a lot of these bands when they were touring the States and then, um, you know, hearing a lot of it when I was in England as well, going back and forth, um, it, it really, um, you know, it, it was, a it was a absolute boom uh in time it was really sort of three years and i would almost say it's bookended by two pulp i mean sorry by two blur albums um you know really uh modern life is rubbish uh in 93 and then i'd say their self-titled in 97 was kind of i think widely recognized as um you know the, uh, sort of the their death American of that sound because it, it, that was an album that they certainly took in. A, yeah, I think you were going to say that's why I started to interrupt, but kind of really took an Amer- more American rock approach to. Yeah, I mean, I think it was really you know they were listening. It had, I remember interviews back then, and you know the big song. I remember hearing song number two, uh, driving out to my in laws' house in Massachusetts. Um, it was you know it was such a departure even though it was a great song and I didn't foresee it being the, you know, the soundtrack to, you know, every sports stadium in America. Um, when I heard that album, it's, you know, the, the DJ who was playing it at the time, it was, um, you know, they were debuting it sort of, uh, you know, so it was a, a show that was, um, curated, a DJ show. And the DJ said, you know, interviews with Damon Albarn and, and, uh, the rest of the band, uh, said that they've been listening to a ton of, pavement of late and they wanted to achieve a sound um that was bigger and more american um i don't really get the pavement parallel in this case but i will say that that to me sort of signaled the end of Britpop when blur who were sort of one of the progenitors um one of the major foundational pieces you know sort of decided to go american so you're gonna say or we're gonna define Britpop as 1993 around, give or take, into... I would say 93 to 97. 97, and okay. And again, my, you know, my recollection of it, I mean, and these are historical events, so it's not like I'm arguing, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm giving an opinion. This is, um, you know, I, I was actually under the impression, um, 
that Blair came into office earlier than 97. He, he actually was, uh, he, he came to office in 97, but there was something of a, I guess with the, you know, Madchester in the second summer of love in 98, I mean, I'm sorry, in 88, um, you know, sort of gave rise to a growing feeling that England was the epicenter of the cultural world. And, you know, between the Manchester scene, the rave scene in the late 80s, early 90s, there was this, for the first time, I think, there was a generation of British kids, first time since the 60s, um, there, that there was a generation of British kids that felt cool, uh, which is a funny thing to say, uh, given that they brought us punk and everything else. But punk kids weren't, the, the whole punk movement was born out of a futility, uh, whereas this Britpop movement was really born out of a, a patriotism um, that was very un, um, unusual for, you know, sort of cynical and self-effacing Brits. They, um, you know, but they were, they sort of were feeling out what it meant to feel good about yourself, your country, um, and, you know, the sort of the cultural export that you were um, part of it's a, it was a it was a weird time but it was palpable and that gave rise to the first you know um, you know a, a change in leadership and um, you know sort of the first feeling that there was a youth uh, revolution uh, since you know I guess the swing in sixties back in uh, Chelsea and in London and you know. And uh, Biba and and the you know British invasion. So that's a, a long winded way around talking about uh, what gave rise to Britpop. But Britpop really felt like what it was was a return to the examination of England through pop music, where you know everything had been bombast and blues based and American imitation. Um, you know for. The, you know, 30 years that preceded it. And this was going back and pulling a, uh, you know, a, we are the Village Green Preservation Society move and writing about the things that are intrinsically British, the class system, um, schools, uh, you know. Soccer, <laughs> football. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and name-checking very specific references, um, you know, songs like Park Life, uh, off the album Park Life by Blur or End of a Century or, you know, Blur particularly, I think, and then Pulp, um, you know, from Sheffield, very particularly, um, you know, just sort of skewers being British in a very wry, um, you know, like I said, self-effacing way, but in a way that was so brilliant, I thought. Um, I hate to use that word in, in the context of talking about it was clever it was uh yeah. you know it was fu- downright funny yeah I, I remember hearing you know common people for the first time i remember exactly where i was i had just uh we were uh you know i just had a fight with my girlfriend that now wife and i was in the car and i heard this song and i could have been like the worst moment you know i hate you know you feel really crappy after that and i heard this song and i was like holy shit that might be the best song I've ever heard. And I hold that feeling to this day. I still think it's maybe, uh, you know, one of the top five songs I've ever heard in my life. It's so clever, so funny, and a good tune. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, I, I think you, you nail something. So the phenomenon of Britpop is, 
is, like we said, sort of we're looking at 93 through 97, and then intrinsically English. I mean, it, you know, it was a time where I felt like those bands didn't really care what we were doing over here. Um, that ended, obviously, in, in 97, but I think that, uh, I think you're right on there. I think um, instead of, you know, sort of taking American music and, and making it British, like Led Zeppelin and The Stones and, and uh, lots of the British Invasion bands, these guys were doing uh, uh, kinks. And, and, you know, unlike the kinks, those albums about the kinks, this music actually did come back to the States, and we love the Britishness of it. Um, let's go ahead and hear something by, uh, let's hear, do you want to hear a Pulp song or a Blur song, and then we'll take a quick break. Let's go and, Park Life, just, yeah, for, let's do uh, it. just for the sake of it. Um, discussing Britpop post our uh, our American greatest band bracket, and uh, you know, Win and I both were were fans, different different degrees of fans of Britpop. Win was a huge fan. I was a uh, tepid fan who, who's come to to love the genre more, and as I've gotten older and kind of look back on it fondly than I did at the time. One of the things that was always confusing to me and with British music in general, despite the fact that the British press always claimed that every single band that ever came out was the greatest band since the Beatles, but we'll they leave that stopped. for another conversation, um, was, you know, you have bands like Blur and, and Pulp, who we discussed in the last segment there, who, who to me, I mean, obviously are just so British and and uh, have a great sense of humor and, and certainly uh, touch on, on all things um, Britannia. Um, but then there was bands like, you know, Suede and Oasis and, and um, even like Elastica, who had a bit more of a rock sound, um, certainly were British sounding, but but didn't quite, to me, fit that kind of bubbly Britpop. So no, give me a rundown exactly. of the styles and, and what kind of influences these bands. Well, I think you can draw a dotted line back from uh, every single one of these bands to the band that they were sort of uh, attempting to be. Um, I think the you know I think Oasis was was very nakedly attempting to be the Beatles by way you know and a little bit of the Jam, but um, again they were they were sort of um, you know I understand uh, by virtue of my defining these things as being uh, you know an attempt at cleverness of how Oasis doesn't fit into that situation, but they were going for straight ahead you know um, the most popular version of the British Invasion bands, which is. Um, you know, the Beatles, they weren't going though for that, you know, sort of stonesy, bluesy, borrowed American sound. They were going for, you know, the sort of, uh, pop rock, um, you know, um, Beatles, uh, Blur, I think is a direct descendant of the Kinks. Um, I think, 
Suede was very much um, and admittedly uh, a, a band that was attempting to to be Bowie T Rex and you know sweet wrapped into one. Um, I give them extra credit because they're a hometown band. They're from Brighton, but um, I don't know if Suede. You know, it's funny. I don't know that Suede belongs in the Britpop conversation. I feel like they were doing something different, and I think I really liked what they were doing. But they were doing glam rock. Um, and in as much as that is sort of uh, um, a very British pursuit and was, you know, had its brief moment, brief heyday in the early 70s with, you know, Mata Hoople and, and David Bowie, The Sweet, um, Gary Glitter. Um, I'm about to read Simon Reynolds' history of uh, glam rock, so I'll come back and do a, another uh, podcast on, on that world. We can do but, a, a WTF glam rock episode in some exactly. point as well. Look forward to it. Um, Elastica, I mean, for what it's worth, just bald-facedly ripped wire? off wire. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, their Anybody? song was, it was a cover with different lyrics. Um, also a great song, though. Um, but, you know, they were going more of that sort of angular post-punk, um, new wave, uh, you know, the, the stuff that wire was, you know, was obviously... Uh, um, and so, well, you kind of had you, two sides because you had people like Blur and Pulp who played a little bit with dance music and, and electronic music, and, and certainly were more synth heavy. And and you know, I mean, Boys and Girls is a great disco song. And and uh, to your point, you know, common, much of Blur stuff, I, th- I mean, sorry, uh, Pulp stuff is is very synth heavy and and, and mm-hmm. kind of dancey. And then there's like this, you know, line in the sand of, of you know, not what I called at the time sort of edgy rock, but definitely rock, you know? No, it was guitar-based rock yeah. music. It was straightforward, four-piece, you know. It was, um, uh, I, and then I was just about to draw a dotted line back from Pulp to probably Charles Dickens and Martin Amos. <laughs> <laughs> just so well, there's a little Roxy music in there, I would think, Yeah, too. very much, very much so. But um, no, I think it, it, that was what was so funny about the uh, the you know great blur oasis uh, war and debate and and whatever else. I mean, it was every day in the in the British papers. It was, uh, are you blur? Are you oasis? Right. You know, <clears throat> they were Damon. the two biggest. Yeah, by far. And oasis was the biggest by far. Absolutely, because oasis um, was big here. Yeah. Well. Yeah. But they were they were even. I mean, they were. A lot bigger. They were football arena. I mean, they were football stadium. Blur was an arena rock band. Right. You know, I mean, if, if you can make that distinction, it's you know, it's Guns and Roses versus you know, whatever. Um, they Oasis sold records at a record pace. They you know they literally they said when What's the Story Morning Glory hit in '95. That HMV and Virgin Records were selling, I think, one CD every two seconds or something, you know, absurd. This is back when you had to buy hard copies of. Yeah, of, no, uh, I mean, th- that album, What's the Story, Morning Glory, and, and um, <clears throat> I mean, those singles were huge. They were, I mean, as a kid in, in my teens in, in America, I mean, and, and you obviously were in the States as well. Um, those those were big big hits, and I mean mm-hmm. Blur definitely popped up uh, more than some of the band the underground bands that I was listening to American underground and even English underground bands because this sort of the funny thing too is I think you know you had the Manchester scene then you had a very brief shoegazer scene which probably yeah. was that period from ninety to ninety three right yeah that was um, the with bridge. bands like Ride and, and stuff like that and then then Britpop kind of just swept that. 
Um, and I think Americans were sort of more drawn, or at least and, and I was, I shouldn't say all Americans, were kind of drawn to that shoegaze sound and because it, it, mi- it mimics some of the, the indie rock that was going on here at the time. Well, no, I, I find, and I think historic. you know, if you look back now. Critics um, as well. Bands like Slow Dive and, and uh, My Bloody Valentine, you know, sustained a much larger audience over here than, than probably Oasis. You know, if Oasis were to reunite... Um, you know, they, they'd play Coachella, they'd play some big festivals, but if they were really to reunite for, like, a sustained tour, they'd probably be playing theaters. You know, it's they weren't as big here as, um, you know, they didn't have that sustained fan base here that they would in England. I mean, they could go back in England, and if they reunited and, and played in England right now, you know, they'd be playing stadiums again, and, and yep. they certainly wouldn't be doing that here. Um one funny well, thing. Sorry, oh, go, go ahead. <clears throat> no, no, go. I have another question, so if you have more to, to add no, to no, this, No, 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 I just, the, the one band I didn't want to leave out of this was Supergrass, who I, you know, whose main, right. whose dotted line may go directly back to the monkeys, um, <laughs> got, judging by their first albums, but I think Supergrass was, you know, was uh, really almost the definitive uh, Britpop band. Uh, they just had that you know the the spirit of that band was fun playful yep. um you know rascally you know they were blended sort of the, all of the genres we just talked about had some songs that that mimicked kind of the the mott the hoople and and glam rock pub rock glam rock and then um certainly had that british playfulness of blur um and also had some groove to them too you know like some of the other bands yeah they were i, I really think they were underestimated um, and, uh, but, you know, when I think, when I look at, you know, uh, uh, the years that this, you know, this was a super, like, super concentrated moment. I mean, between 93 and 97, that's, you know, four years, every single one of these, you know, landmark albums came out. It was pretty impressive. The other thing that I wanted to, to sort of touch on briefly is that, you know, this, this period in American music is always, you know, uh, sort of remembered as the grunge and post-grunge era, whatever those are, um, dominated by, you know, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and, and rightly so, they were Pearl Jam. But don't forget, too, that, um, you know, sort of right on the heels of those, I mean, the, the, great, the biggest selling albums of that era in America were Cracked Rear View by Hootie and the Blowfish and <laughs> Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Right. So, you know, I mean, there was... You know, we were going from having a moment where there was a cultural breakthrough in America with stuff like Nevermind and, and you know, the, um, you know, 91, the year that punk broke. But we were going back to being a boring, um, relatively standardized. Um, we were going back to the Eagles, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, Dave Matthews was on the rise. Um, yeah, there was the new kind of jam band. Um, rising going on for sure, and, and, and I guess so, sort of acoustic-y, soft music. And I would, I mean, by American standards, I would call that a market correction. Yep. You know. <laughs> so, so anyway, speaking of market corrections, and let's do one question. We'll take another break, and then um, we'll talk about some of the albums on this list. But you know, having your father be English, um, I certainly uh, know the Lew- the British side of the Lewis family quite well, and and. Um, but I know you spent a lot more time over there. I, I've, I've often wondered just, you know, what were the kind of like, to me, and I, I guess I'll, I'll rephrase this, one of my annoyances with Britpop in America was that there was always that guy in, in the music scene that I was in that had to dress the part in only 
listen yeah. to British music, which was the most annoying comment I ever could hear. So this guy would only listen to Super Furry Animals, Primal Scream, Blur, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Blur, Oasis. Yeah, Anglophiles um, are irritating. Yeah, oh my God, so irritating. And, and it's, a, it's a kind of rarity, I think, that has disappeared today where um, the internet has kind of wiped away some of those barriers. But back then, you certainly could identify with a label or a scene or music. In England, you know, I, I picture, um, you know, pulp as being sort of a you know, taking the piss out of class structure and, and things of that nature, but they were in every man's band at the same time, right? I mean, what was going on over there with this music? These are hits. You yeah. know, I mean, that's that's the difference is that, you know, I mean, the th- stuff that we think of as, as obscure just because it was, you know, I mean, I think obscurity and uh, has more to do with the relative difficulty of getting your hands on it uh, historically, you know, from the 70s and, and 80s. I mean, into the 90s here, I mean, the Met, the Stone Roses, were massive in England. I mean, it wasn't a, uh, you know, there wasn't a distinction. It wasn't college kids listening to the Stone Roses. Yeah, go watch Made of Stone. And I mean, you have yeah. uh, construction workers running over people to get the ticket for the first show same back. With, yeah, know? same with the Smiths. You know, I mean, the Smiths were a big band. Yep. You know, that's the thing that's always, uh, you know, I mean, they, in order to, to, to sort of listen to this and uh, or in order to have been listening to that stuff in real time in America, you had to work a little harder. So it was, it, you know, it wasn't every, you know, it wasn't people hearing it a million times on the radio and going, you know, and just, you know, being conditioned to liking that kind of music. Um, you know, it took a specific type of person that wanted to seek out that kind of, you know, and I, I was one of those people. Um, certainly, uh, you know, having a British family cures you of Anglophilia, uh, I would say, though, um, <laughs> you know, spending time over there watching their version of of uh, game shows and soap operas and you know, the mundane shit that goes with um, uh, not going there as a tourist and just Which being there. Which lots of these bands uh, were, were brilliant at describing in their lyrical content. Absolutely. You know? That was the whole thing. I mean, and, and the one thing Brits are good at is, is laughing at themselves. Um, that and trying to impose their culture um, elsewhere. Uh, you know, like I said before, it's, you know, this is, the, you know, this they're singing about the guys that go on holiday in the Cote d'Azur and, and wonder why they don't have British tea. You know, this is, it's, it's that, you know, Brits are, are famous for being, um, in, of, of, of traveling and being intolerant of foreign cultures, despite the fact that they are submerged in them. So, uh, you know, I remember Boys and Girls, uh, was a great, um, you know, sort of skewering of, of the, uh, the Brit, uh, you know, the Brit, uh, teen and early 20, young adult on holiday, um, and uh, I don't know. Um, I you know the, to me this was there was a this was the, the thing that made Britpop I guess um, in its essence and I'm, this is just coming to me in real time is that it was a cross section between analyzing and poking fun at British culture, but during a time when people felt good about being British, and so it was celebratory and analytical, and that's what made it fun. Well, cool. Well, let's take a break. Let's listen to uh, In It For The Money by Supergrass. And then uh, we'll come back and, and we'll dissect the top 15 of the top 50.
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We're, um, we're basically, I mean, we're the, the impetus for this conversation was a pitchfork released its list of the top 50 best Britpop uh, records. And I love, you know, I love a list. So um, it gives you a, a form, you know, a, a, something formal to, to argue with, for and against. And um, I have to say that I think they did a, a, a very good job, um, at least in the, you know, the sort of top uh, quadrant of the uh, of their list they you know they they sort of I've got a, a few um, questions and a few uh, a little bit of an axe to grind on a couple but you know for the most part um, you know when this comes out and you know the, again this was in the era of owning CDs uh, back in the day when uh, we were young and proprietary um, and uh, I definitely I own the top twenty albums that they had on there. So um, you know there is a, there. I feel very comfortable talking about uh, this as a, as a list and and concur with much of it. But uh, um, what what were your thoughts, Jer? When you yeah, saw you it? know, I mean, so again, it, it kind of confirmed my confusion around Britpop, which which certainly uh, solidified the reason we have the uh, what the fuck is Britpop pod going right now. Um, hopefully, it's 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 a little more clarified at least in Wynn's opinion, um, what Britpop is, and, and I tend to kind of agree. Um, but, you know, I too kind of remember this period, and, and, it, and it didn't dominate my, my music as much as probably yours at the time, but I, I, it was a huge part of what I listened to, and it was just a huge part of the, the sort of indie, alternative, um, new music scene that, that was hitting at the time. And, and if we think, you know, if I say 93 to 97, you know, for me, I'm going from, um, you know, basically 16 to, to my early 20s. So it was a period that, that I am very familiar with. I, I'm not probably not as familiar with all the top 15, but uh, a lot of the top 15 I, I definitely owned. And I think I rattled off something like I had around 20 or 25 of the albums out of the top 50 at some point in my life. So let's go through the top 15 and yeah, what I'd like before, to do. Just yeah, before, go ahead, sorry. sorry, just before that, I was, I was just going to uh, sorry, I was just uh, selfishly going to make a point, which is that, um, you know, where uh, Manchester gave us in spiral carpets, thanks to the British press. Um, you know, uh, Britpop gave us Cool as Shaker and some other <laughs> uh, rather uh, forgettable bands. So you know, don't. Um, there was this is this is the cream that rose to the top. There was a lot of pale and intimidate uh, uh, imitators, much of the same as in the post grunge America. Uh, there was you know bands with names like Grunge Truck and. Uh, you know that yeah, were candle box that were uh, attempting to hop the hop the wagon. So um, that said, let's walk. You want to walk through some of these? Yeah. So I think what we'll do here is we'll kind of go through the top fifteen for our listeners of the Pitchfork list, which you can look up obviously on uh, Pitchfork.com and, and just type in the fifty best Britpop albums. Um, and what we'll do is we'll kind of talk about it, its relevance if it fits in what we've kind of defined as Britpop, and then, um, you know, uh, if we own the album and, and enjoyed it, which when I think might have owned all of them and I had some of them, we can talk a little bit about the band too, but we'll kind of do a, a quick little overview of the top 15. So the first one is um, Corner Shop, When I Was Born for the Seventh Time. That's um, a great album. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> like, amazing album, totally different, and, and one that, again, I wouldn't have probably thought Britpop, but it definitely falls within that time frame and is, is very British at the same time, um, just, you know, I, having Indian uh, sitar and, and, you know, the, the members being of Indian descent. It was a, a mishmash of sort of dance music, pop music, and, and uh, world music. God, I believe the guy's name was Talvin Singh. Um, yep, and it was, actually. Uh, I, 
yeah, to me, this was this was a great album and a quintessentially British album because there really is, I mean, on top of, you know, the layers of of what school you went to and, and what part of London you grew up in, um, there was this whole, you know, there's the whole sort of Indian um, culture, you know, uh, an Asian culture in, in England, and it's so... Um, it's such a part of things and it, it really, it was never addressed in, in rock and pop music as much as, uh, and these guys can't kind of came out of nowhere and just kicked it. Uh, they were, it were so good and so funny and so clever about it. Um, I mean, this is a, this is an album that had a Hindi cover of Norwegian wood by the Beatles, which I think is one of the greatest in jokes in the history of, of, you yep. know, British music. Um, who I got to see them at South by Southwest, their first U.S. dates, and uh, in '97, yeah, and ripped it live. Nope, yep. yeah, they kicked the ass. They were they. I I wouldn't have if you were to ask me, um, you know, to list my top fifteen, I would have forgotten this one because I wouldn't have put it in the Britpop category. But it so firmly belongs there. I'm psyched that it's there. No, it was a good good pick by the folks at Pitchfork. The other one is one that I think falls out of our our time period. An album that we both adore um, is definitely British. So let's talk about the Laws, the debut album, The Laws. Yeah, now, the only the, album I should say, <laughs> one and done. Yeah, <laughs> the um, the career spanning retrospective yeah. of The Laws. Yeah, that, that, they were a crazy story. I mean, you know, as you know, Lee Mavers uh, famously um, uh, contemptu- contemptuous and uh, a difficult personality and a perfectionist who scrapped everything they did after the first album and was pissed about the first album coming out. Yeah, um, which I don't know. we both I think, think sounds brilliant, and I think lots and lots of people agree with us. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but I would not put that in the Britpop category. I would not either, it, yeah. What it was was just its own little island out there. Yeah. It was a basically um, it was something akin to a British invasion album that that managed to come out in 1990. Yeah, I was gonna um, say there was an album that was sort of like before its time, and 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 even if uh, today I was gonna say like. Um, I just I never would picture it as a Britpop album. To your to your point, it, it is more of a British invasion album. It's just a great great record. Highly recommend it. Yeah, the one thing I do remember, and this is just an aside, that um, our sister Lisa was was uh, program director at WNYU at the time. Um, she was finishing up at Tish, and she told me that this because like the they were so convinced the record label the band everybody was so convinced that there she goes was a hit and couldn't figure out why it wasn't catching on that they actually released that as a single seven times i was gonna say i think i've seen four different videos for it at four different times and and i believe uh our other brother and co-host christian lewis has mentioned when we've talked about this album in the past that he only knew it as like a jingle a commercial jingle (laughs) so um that, well, let's move just, on. Sorry, do you have anything else no, to say on the laws? Um, let's move on to 1993, another album that we both really like. And, uh, you know, I, I think has a, a very different sound here, too, is Suede's debut album. Um, you know, this was a this was a just a kind of a shocker when it came out because it was, you know, really took on sort of an androgynous feel, had sort of a, a dirty early Bowie um, T-Rex um, I don't know. I, I I thought this was a great album. Uh, again, I'm not totally convinced that I would have put this album in in the Britpop genre either. But it does fall within the year. And, no, it uh, sort of certainly. It almost reminds me of like um, the Black Crows who came out around the same time. Like they just didn't really, you know, in the face of grunge, they didn't make sense. 
And uh, I felt like suede was kind of the same way in a, in a much different uh, type of music. But um, it was uh, suede. I, I remember hearing Metal Mickey for the first time and just I'm trying to think of that it. song. I was like, what was that first single that just blew me away? Yeah, Metal Mickey. It, it, That's such a great song. It was a great <clears throat> tune. And, you know, I remember, you know, all the artwork around it, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, gender nonspecific uh you know, kiss on the front of on the cover, which was which you know at the time you know doesn't, would, certainly doesn't seem um, no not shocking now. in 2017, but actually in 1993, believe it or not, that was a shocking cover. Yeah, it was, and it was a cool cover because it was just you know it, it was sort of like a trompe l'oeil. It didn't you know didn't really you couldn't really figure it out. And uh, I thought that album was right on. It, Songs like Animal Nitrate. Um, yeah, Drowners. Drowners. Yeah. Um, it was a killer record, and I, I again like I don't think of that as being Britpop necessarily, but maybe my maybe this is you know this goes to show me that my uh, I I feel like you know some things on this list are there because of uh, you know for you know obvious reasons the time when they were released rather than the type of music that they represent that is a that is a classic of um, I find that to be a classic glam rock record. Yeah, and I was going to say, I think Suede, like the laws, is an island unto itself. Um, well, here is a Britpop album, according to you, in 1995, Supergrass, I Should Coco. And uh, this was a big album. I mean, this was their debut album. Um, and it also was, you know, had a big hit, in Amer- or not a big hit, but a, a minor hit in America with uh, We Are Young that was featured on um, the Clueless. Clueless soundtrack. Yep. Um, yeah. All right, it was a, the title of that song, and it was uh, you know these guys sounded like a they sounded I mean they, truly I wasn't joking when I said they sounded like the monkeys and the monkeys had great songs I mean Neil Diamond wrote a lot of the monkeys songs um, Aichi Coco I remember has the distinction too of being the first CD that anyone ever burned for me so <laughs> <laughs> it tells you what was going on in 1995 <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, you know, that was, I love that album caught by the fuzz. Um, the, it just has some, it has the whole album has like a momentum to it and a brevity. It, it, it has nothing in common with the sound of the Ramones, but it has a lot in common with the spirit of the Ramones. Yeah. I think Buzzcocks, Ramones. I mean, this, this, I, I do think this is a Britpop album. It's definitely very poppy. It, it tackles a lot of the themes we've been talking about, but I do think out of all the all the bands we've listed, you know, are discussed, this had the most edge to it. You know, this had a, a little more of a punk aesthetic in the music and the delivery, and also almost a you know like much like the Ramones, almost like a girl group, um, you know, sort of skeleton to it. Um, they were very punchy, fun, um, you know, just. It was good time music, and if you know, it was sort of like music to to shoplift and uh, play hooky too. <laughs> well, let's uh, go to number eleven on the Pitchfork list, which is uh, another classic, at least in my book. And I will say this, despite my um, sort of initial pushback on bands like Pulp and, and Oasis, um, God, I love Pulp <laughs> today, yeah. and. Um, they really are, you know, just one of those bands that was just so intelligent, uh, so creative, and musically really catchy to me. Um, and His and Hers is an album I, I came to later. That's number 11 on the list, 1994. Uh, Common People um, was was the album that, that certainly I got into first. And I think you turned me on to His and Hers later. But another really just masterpiece by Pulp. And uh, why don't you, I know this is a big one for you, so why don't you talk yeah, about Pulp love, real quick? Well, His and Hers, I mean, songs like Babies and... 
Joyride, and and um, you know they were. This is uh, they were the most. Their uh, band from Sheffield, uh, Jarvis Cocker, uh, the leader, um, Richard Holly, the guitarist. Um, they were the most class conscious band. They were the ones that were writing the most incisive songs about. Um, you know, what historically is a touchy subject in England. And they did it so well that they sort of, you know, um, I think every class of, of people uh, sort of recognized the brilliance of it. It wasn't um, one of those things where they were saying, kill, you know, it was one of those things where they were saying, you know, eat the rich and the rich were dancing along to it. Um, it's It's just incredibly catchy. His lyrics are, you know, comically you know funny i mean in a in a way that you just want to listen to them and dissect them um this guy's a storyteller uh and everything he has you know in a social comment his social commentary is is unparalleled in this group he's really just and this guy's a novelist who who uh sort of wrote songs instead Let's get to number 10, and I agree on Pulp, and uh, we, may, we may or may not have another opportunity to talk about them. So um, at number 10, and then we'll take a, a break and, and listen to a song by this band, but this, this was one that certainly crossed over the ocean with the mega hit Urban Hymns, which is an amazing song, and that, that is Verve. I'm sorry, Bittersweet Symphony, yep, the album um, Urban Hymns by the Verve. And, and I'm not sure too many Americans actually listen to much of the album, but that Bittersweet Symphony to this, to this day is, is a radio hit here and, and obviously in England as well. Um, so let's talk about the Verve, Urban, Urban Hymns. Another one that I, I kind of, I don't know, you know, I love this album. I don't really think of it as a, as a pop album as much as I think of it as a, um, a little bit more to the, you know, the way that we love the Rolling Stones. I mean, this is a bit more of a, a kind of American style rock and roll album to me. Um, well, kind of... It, Tran- translated through British people. <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention the Rolling Stones because Rolling Stones got every penny of profit exactly. from this uh, <laughs> yeah. from the release of this because it was uh, this would be the last time played by the London Philharmonic that was sampled in Bittersweet Symphony. But you have to say, as much as we love the Stones, um, come on, guys, it's you a know dick move. it's a total <laughs> dick move. <laughs> I think you have enough, boys. Um, you know? No, I think I, to me that's uh, you know I think that's the song of the decade. Um, yeah. I really do. Uh, it can, you know, I, I think it probably irritates certain people. I can people. agree to I that. Think, um, I, but I, there's nothing, I never get tired of that song. And that, yeah, I, the, I think oh, you're wrong. I, I don't know too many people that don't like that song. I mean, people just love, it's a, it's such a good song. It's epic. <laughs> you know? I yeah. mean, it is a truly a huge fucking song. And, um, I do think though, um, that, uh, that that album you know went went fairly ignored over here again it was you know they listened you know the album was had several hits in England but I mean songs like Lucky Man Another Velvet Morning Drugs Don't um, Work Drugs Don't Work all really really good songs um, very different uh, from the bombast and the the you know scale of Bittersweet Symphony which is just you know like I said that's a song that you can listen to quietly it's a song you can listen to you know with the ferocity of the biggest beats in hip hop, it's like you crank that song and it just, it rattles your brain. It's great. So um, what do you think on the terms of our Britpop scale for this album though? I mean, I, I, I do, I you know, it tucks it in at the very end. I do okay. think it's so a kind very of British album, the... but more, um, in the sort of vein of like, you know, British popular music, uh, as opposed to something that is consciously about Britain. 
um, you know, it's sort of, it, to me, this fits, you know, squarely in, um, you know, the sort of lineage of British music because it doesn't, you know, I mean, it's more guitar oriented, but it's not, you know, super blues oriented or, or, you know, aiming, it doesn't try to sound American. It sounds English, but it sounds like English guitar rock, which is exactly what it is. Great. Well, let's, uh, let's hear something off, uh, the verb. Let's, 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 so, let's pay a couple more of, uh, Mick Jagger's electric bills. With, exactly. With yeah. Bittersweet, uh, symphony. <laughs> back and what we're doing here is we're just kind of running through the top 15 of Pitchfork's top 50 uh, greatest Britpop albums um, a genre we, we sort of defined in earlier segments as we feel kind of or you know feel 93 to 97 and uh, you know intrinsically British um, a time when Britain was feeling good about themselves and, and pumping out lots of, of great British music so at number 9 is probably the you know if there had to be a king of, of this time period crowned um and certainly I, I think the biggest in england and a band that eventually got very very big over here as well it's oasis and it's their early their definitely maybe was their debut correct yes yep so their debut album definitely maybe at number nine yes we talked about in the uh podcast about their documentary i mean this is a band that formed uh was signed at their first gig and um you know the went from being unsigned to headlining Nebworth and playing for a quarter of a million people within the course of two and a half years. So the rise of Oasis was absolutely meteoric. And the funny thing is, I, you know, like I said, you know, I, I'm the one that sort of declared that the bookends of this genre were 93 to 97, you know, with uh, sort of, pul- I mean, sorry, Blur's second album uh, kicking it off. Um, it uh, what it what it really is is um, you know Blur kicks it off with their second album uh, their first album Leisure was very much uh, an imitation of Madchester um, you know their second album Modern Life is Rubbish sort of introduces the genre and definitely maybe by Oasis kicked it into fucking high gear it's the album that real I would say this is the album that announced the arrival of Britpop, that this is the one where that sort of changed the mood of the country. This was an inescapable record when you were over there back then. And 
it was the one that people, this is the one that got people to feeling good about being British again. And it was, everybody loved this album. And this, again, sort of started the Oasis versus Blur arms race um, that uh, you couldn't escape for about four years. Yeah, it's funny. I remember, um, you know, we'll we'll spend a little more time on Oasis as we drop down the list here, but I do really remember there was a club in Manhattan called The Wetlands, which um, tended to be, you know, sort of hippie jam band club, for those of you who remember it. It was very small, not a bad place to see music, but it definitely wasn't known as a sort of an alternative or indie Smelled rock club. Like patchouli, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Lots of, of um, patchouli and weed smoke and had a VW van inside of it. But I, I vividly remember Oasis on their one of their first tours um, on definitely maybe right before they sort of got kicked into high gear playing there. And mm-hmm. um, we tried to get in and couldn't. But, um, you know, there was enough buzz that that place sold out pretty quick. It was a small club. But, I mean, that's just kind of the, the difference of what was going on over, over in England versus here. That said, this album was a, a minor hit here and then definitely um, had, you know, the Anglophiles in full effect loving it. Yeah. It's a good album. It's a rocking album, actually. It's, it's a really good rock and roll song. album. You know, there's it's a rock and roll star. It's, it's, it's Cigarettes it's, and alcohol. Yeah. It's a... Uh, it's one that I sort of revisited later and, and enjoyed more. And so the death of, um, of Britpop kind of comes next. And number eight is the self-titled album by Blur. We talked a little bit about this or when did in the beginning. Um, it's funny. This is an album that I really liked when it came out. And I listen to less now than I do some of the more um, sort of in-your-face British albums that Blur put out. But this was uh, Graham Coxon, who was very much – so there was kind of two fact factions in Blur, you know, there was the Damon Albarn um, and the band that, that liked to experiment more and, and be sort of more playful and poppy and, and even dancey at times, and Graham Coxon, who was, was very much into American indie rock, and, uh, you know, one band in particular, Pavement, who was, who was one of his favorite bands. I, I believe they came over to the States to record this album, and, uh, and you know, it, it definitely has the most rock and roll sound, and it's, it's funny, to me, it actually sounds a little more... Um, Oasis-ish and Nirvana-ish yeah. than it does Pavement. Well, it was but, big. Um, yeah, and it was a, a huge sound. And, and, you know, still a lot of these songs, Beetle Bum and, and Song Number 2, which is, was the big hit off of it. And this was, this was their biggest album in America by far. Yeah, they, um, yeah but absolutely. And, and like I said, the, the fact that it became a stadium anthem is, is one of the more ironic things. I mean, Damon Albarn, um, for those who don't know, you know went on to create gorillas and um you know and sort of satisfy his dance um you know his more dancey instincts um and genre melding instincts the other thing is that uh blur regrouped a couple years ago and and actually put out a pretty knockout album uh just a couple years ago so they still have it no they're a great band and um i think we have a little more blur to come so um again a reoccurring band on this is number seven's pulp this is hardcore, and this came out in 1998. Well, so this is post, unless you, uh, this is post your our 97 cut. I was going to say if if Blur uh, self titled is the is the death of Britpop, this is its post mortem, uh, yeah. and it felt every bit that way. I mean, it is after uh, Different Class by Pulp came out and was fantastic and and you know really uh, you know celebratory and and fun. This was this was the Hangover. I mean, this album is a I, I disagree with its placement on this list. I don't love this as hardcore. Um, I, yeah, it's I very high. I remember I've tried to get in this album a couple of times because there's people 
that claim this is, you know, one of their best. Um, I, you know, I'm going to disagree. And, uh, I, I, I got, I bought this album when it came out because I, I loved, um, different class so much. I, um, was excited when this album came out and I, I've just, I've always found this album hard to get through. It, it's kind of boring. It, it, what it is, is it, you know, I mean, I understand it's, I understand it's, um, it's greatness and I think it's a drag. What, what was not a drag was 1995's uh, Elastica self-titled album, which is number six. Speaking of uh, Damon Albarn's girlfriend at the time, yeah, it was, was a lead it, singer. Justine Fleischman. Um, yeah. To me, this is the best Wire album ever fronted by uh, female <laughs> singers. This um, is a great album. The lyrics are amazing. Yeah, uh, the riffs are amazing. I mean, it songs was, like uh, "Stutter" and Stutter "Connection." Was, yeah. "Connection" was a big hit in the states. I mean, yep. you still you play that opening, uh, you know, uh, sequence that uh, is just you know people know it. It's um, you know it's stuck it's stuck historically more than most uh, these Britpop songs in America. So, um, but uh, "Stutter" is one of the funnier, meaner spirited songs I can ever remember um, coming from a, a female lead singer. Um, about the uh, sexual issues of of a boyfriend, um, it's a, it's a very clever, cool record, and they did actually put out a follow up, but there was a lot of problems involved in its promotion. And um, Alaska, you know, for all intents and purposes, was a one album band, but a fucking great one. Yeah, no, I was gonna say it was a band that I was always disappointed didn't kind of stay with it or, or go on to do more. Um, but, uh, it, this album will always be remembered. And I do think, you know, definitely along the, the lines of I should Coco has a little bit more of a punk edge and, and angular guitar style, but definitely falls into that, that Britpop world and, and was very British. The next one is an album that, you know, I'm going to defer to you in cause I'm not as familiar. I, I was a big lover of the first suede album. I, uh, unfortunately did not keep up with the band, although I, I hear nothing but great things of, of their, their catalog post the first album, but that's 1994's Dog Man Star. Um, yeah, this is, this is the album where, uh, they had to change their name in the States. That's States right, it became the London Suede the in London the U.S. The London I remember that. Um, yeah. which, I don't know, for some reason it always rubs me the wrong way, but I actually, you know, I mean, I think the debut has actually got higher highs. I think this is a more consistent record. I think it's great. It's a little bit of a downer. It's a. It's definitely uh, the sound of of two um, heavyweights from the from this era, uh, Brett Anderson and Bernard Butler, um, breaking up. Um, they they um, obviously there was a lot of friction in the band. Bernard Butler left um, maybe during this album or soon after anyway, and Suede was never the same. But I do think it, you know it very a, very British theme, right? The, there's always the lead singer and the guitar player. Oh yeah, and the, all these bands, you know. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's it is one of the great British tropes. Um, but I would say, um, you know, give it a give it another listen. It's a really terrific record. It's it's more of a downer than, um, than the you know during, than the debut. Um, but it's also you know it's. It's incredibly easy listen, and um, I think you'll really like it. Yeah, I'll have to. I mean, I like going over this list and reading about Suede again. It, Suede was one of those albums, like you said, Corner Shop, the debut that I kind of, you know, I hate to say it, it's sort of forgotten about, but love. And, uh, you know, this has certainly uh, rekindled my interest in that band. Well, number four is, is a bit of a, you know, I mean, this could be one through four easily, and, and uh, 
it's a huge album. It's an album that that initially we disagreed on, and, and I've come I've come around probably not as strongly as as you and Christian, but um, but it is an album that uh, is damn good, and that's Oasis. What's the story, Morning Glory? Yeah, and, to uh, me, to me, this album is you know, 11 singles long. It's it, like, there is not a dud on this record. Um, it's, uh, it's just super consistent every song. And, you know, I say that, uh, in jest here, but I, it felt like every song was a single in England. Um, you know, I, I remember going over, uh, to our grandmother's funeral, which actually was the beginning of my honeymoon. Um, and, uh, this album being absolutely inescapable and I didn't care. I, I drove around Europe for three weeks, and it's all I heard, and I didn't care. It's what I wanted to hear. Um, I think it's phenomenal. I think the the single selection in the states kind of confused me. I, you know, I like Champagne Supernova, but I think it's one of. I I would say it. I I think there's four songs that would have been bigger radio hits um than that here but what do i know it was a big radio well and also so. the first single was uh what's the story morning glory correct which and yeah which is a it's not that song. catchy i uh, see i don't think it's as catchy as some of the other ones but um you know i think roll with it um obviously wonderwall was a big hit and deservedly so roll with but, it should uh, have been the, a single roll with it was the one that that i first heard that i i was kind of like okay I get it, you know, because it's just that catchy chorus in that song just really caught me. My issue with this was, A, you know, the, the music press, which was dominated by, um, you know, if you were into, let's say, sort of indie rock, alternative rock, at the time, um, you know, all of those critics seemed to be Anglophiles. So um, you had a huge, this is the best band ever. And then also the English music press at the time, you had the best band ever. And my my conflict always was like, I get it. Like, they're good. You know, this is really good. But it's not, I didn't get what was so different or unique about them. I will say today, the fact I, I've said, you know, and I was young and I was a little more defiant and into more sort of experimental, you know, loud things. I get it now. I mean, like to put it out to your point, an album that it's a, it's the rumors, right, of Britpop. You know, yeah. it's a it's a perfect album in a sense, and, and so um, and that's a very difficult feat. But in my youth, I was a little more, you know, obstinate towards um, something that didn't have at least some, uh, you know, lo-fi Feedback. qualities or yeah, guitar noise. But it is a fantastic album, and I think easily could be number one. I think you'd agree. Oh yeah, I think you know, and and it's uh, kind of funny that it isn't because. Um, it is truly the definitive work of this era. I mean, it, it, if, if you were to, you know, it, it, this is like playing Fortunate Son while you're shooting a, a, you know, a montage of people arriving at, in Vietnam. I mean, this is, if you wanted to put somebody in England in 1995, you just put on one of the, one of the songs on What's the Story Morning Glory and, and you've got yourself a soundtrack. Well, the next one is, is confusing to me and one I don't necessarily agree with. I do agree the merits that it's a, it's a top you know, five album from this time period. I'm just not sure that I ever grouped it in with Britpop, and that's uh, Radiohead The Bends. And, and you know, my quick Radiohead story is a lot, like a lot of listeners to Radiohead, I, uh, I hated <laughs> Pablo Honey and the song Creep. I've since you know, grown to appreciate that song as well. Um, still not one of my favorites by them, but, but it is a pretty good song. And... Uh, 
you know, I came to the Benz literally by watching a, uh, a, a music critic show where somebody from maybe Rolling Stone, Spin, I think Vibe magazine was at the, around at the time doing a roundtable of the best albums of 1995. And they said the Benz. And soon after I heard um, Fake Plastic Trees and then heard Just and High and Dry and, and went out and bought the album immediately. And, um, you know, I'm going to say it might be my favorite Radiohead album. Um, but I... I don't know. For some reason, it, it, it's it's not a pop album to me, even though a lot of people group it as that. It's a moody, um, sweeping. It's it's almost bigger than the scene. It's a big, if that makes sense. It's a big yeah. record. I, I it's and funny. Heavier, I, feel I also like think as well. it's much more geared towards an American audience. Not that yeah. uh, you know, it never was. A, I don't think it was that popular in England. I I think there was you know I think it was equally popular here where. I think if, you know, I wasn't watching a lot of MTV at the time, um, and you probably were watching as much as you ever had. Fake Plastic Trees and, um, you know, the singles off this album were in regular rotation on MTV. They weren't on, they weren't segregated off into 120 minutes. Is that correct? Um, they became bigger. So the album, it wasn't, it wasn't like, um, it, it was a build. So in America, and actually, um, Andy Greenwald and um, Chris Ryan do a pretty good breakdown on OK Com- or a good breakdown on OK Computer, and they touch on Benz because I think like us, they they really were introduced to Radiohead on this album and love it. But um, and I agree, it was it came out. Those songs were big on in college rock radio and in indie rock radio. But then this album just had sort of a life of its own post that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't necessarily that it was being played on MTV, but it was a very very buzzed about album if you were in college at the time, and uh, and I think grew a, a really large word of mouth audience. Yeah, it's one of those um, sneaky ones where it set the table for OK Computer and yep. nobody to be huge when it came out. Yeah, nobody exactly. would have guessed that that was the you know, architecture that you were going to be, uh, you know, that was going to be defining a nineties. But I, again, I, it's, but I think I'm going to interrupt real quick. I think you're right. I think my friends at the time that were big blur fans, for instance, were not into this album, but my fan friends at the time that were into, you know, Archer's a loaf and, and, you know, dinosaur junior and Sebado were big fans of this album. If that makes yeah. sense, you know? No, it does. <laughs> and I, I, I count me among them. I, I, you know, you turned me onto this album because I had disliked creep enough that I was, you know, I wasn't interested in, and, and really exploring it, and you're like, no, 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 listen to this. This is fucking good. And I was, uh, so I was late to this party myself. Um, again, I agree with you. I don't know that I would put this on a, a Britpop um, best of list, although it would probably occupy the same spot on a best albums of the 90s overall uh, list for me, number three. So 100%. Well, the next one I think is 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 sort of uh, if, if there was a Blur versus Oasis battle, I think the two albums that that kind of define Britpop in my view, um, we went over one of them. What's the story? Morning Glory, um, you know, and uh, Park Life by Blur, which is number two in 1994. To me. If somebody was going to say, what is Britpop? This is the album I would hand them because <laughs> mm-hmm. this is like the most British album ever. <laughs> and, uh, you What's know, about aside England? from Village Green. And, and I, um, and this is actually an album in real time I did love. I, I, I just, I don't know. I love Boys and Girls. I loved, um, I mean, Girls and Boys, sorry. I loved uh, End of the Century. Um, you know, it's just an album that was really catchy. I mean, Park Life, the song is just a hilarious you know, catchy, great song, and, and I think really kind of um, dominated my viewpoint of, of what Britpop should sound like, and I think rightfully so uh, holds the number two spot on this list. Yeah, I would, uh, it's funny, for whatever the Benz lacks in its Britishness, 
uh, its intrinsic Britishness, uh, Park Life can lend it um, enough. Yeah, you can uh, certainly to, spare to a cup of tea line. and some of biscuits too. Yeah, it is the <laughs> most. You know, it's a. It's like Village Green. It is a funny record about being British and the peculiarities of. British people and and the sort of insularity of being British and being, you know, traditional and, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of um, routine oriented and hating change and all the things that make British people British, Um, not the things that make cool British people cool. It's the things that make ordinary British people British, <laughs> you know, those are the those are the kinds of examinations, and I think Village Green did the same thing, where it's a celebration of the silliness of how seriously certain mundanities are taken in day to day British life. I mean, you know, like I said before, if you, you know, if you ever, I would love to cure, um, you know, anybody I ever went to school with Anglophilia by sitting them down and making them watch British television from the 70s and 80s, like I had to. Um, and, uh, you know, Christian could take them to, you know, he went to high school there. Um, it's It just, you, you, you realize how um, entrenched, you know, British culture is. And, when, you know, I mean, I just remember going over there and, you know, thinking that they would wear really goofy shit when they came over to visit here. And then I'd go over there in something like running shoes and would get laughed at for days. And I'm like, okay. And then two years later, they're all wearing running shoes. They would all shoes. have running <laughs> shoes, yeah. Except yeah. for everybody would have them, not just you. You know, um, I just, I always felt like having one foot in either culture uh, gave me the ability to sort of a- analyze both relatively um, safely. And it really was... Um, you know, even still, like my godchildren and and cousins and things, you know, they'll they'll harp on how weird it is that I pronounce words a certain way, and yet, you know, nothing about uh, the way they pronounce anything um, is you know subject for discussion. It's they're, they're, it's a it's a culture that is completely convinced of its own um, you know sort of correctness, which is it makes for a very funny um, group to skewer. No kidding, and, and nobody did it better than Blur's Park Life. Let's take a. Well, well sorry. Do you want to keep going? And yeah, uh, I was just going to say, except one. Except we'll one. Back. Yeah. Before we'll we get get to that, that one, yeah, let's let's hear um, let's hear end of the century from Park okay, Life, cool. and then uh, come back. She says the sand's in the carpet. Dirty little monsters eating all the muscles, picking out the rubbish. Yeah, welcome back to the Brother Brother Pod, and uh, today Wyndham and I are discussing Britpop, and, and a discussion that got started via the uh, pretty excellent uh, list that Pitchfork put together on the top 50 Britpop albums. We, we've run down the top 15, 
And just when we thought there was no album that could sort of uh, encapsulate British culture better than uh, Blur's Park Life or Oasis, What's the Story, Morning Glory, or many of the other great albums we've mentioned, Along Comes Number One. And uh, this is an album we both love. I'll give Wyndham credit for for certainly uh, loving it long before I realized its brilliance, but have come to uh, to think of it as, as probably one of the most clever albums ever written and, and Definitely one of my my top favorite albums, and uh, it's uh, Pulp's excellent, excellent different class. And I, I think Pitchfork got this one right as, at number one, and it was 1995 when this album was released. Yeah, this is. Um, I mean, this is up there with London Calling and Exile on Main Street for me, um, and that's not hyperbole. I love this album so much. Um, it, you know, as a like I said, as a writer, um, uh, my, you know, I'm envious of, of anybody who can be this efficient and economical with taking down an entire culture um, in one song. But it's not just one song. I think this whole album is fantastic from start to finish. I don't think there's a, a dud on it. Um, you know, there's a couple of, uh, um, you know, a couple songs that I, you know, just I go back to all the time. Um, Underwear, which is an over-serious uh, and very fun and silly song. Um, Something Changed to me is one of the better love songs ever written. It's just about the, the you know, the possibility that, you know, one second different, one different decision could have brought you a completely different life. And um, I always thought that was a really brilliant, and again, you know, I mean, you're talking about somebody who's boiled down the the essence of every love song ever written um, and made it, um, you know, a, a three and a half minute gem. Uh, Bar Italia, Disco 2000, they're very funny, literate. Like I said, this guy is, I, I think, a giant of British, uh, a giant among British writers, not just British pop musicians. Um, I really think he'll be remembered as such. Um, and uh, even, you know, so when this album came out, you know, the first thing I heard was um, was uh, Common People, which, again, I think sort of lay, lays bare uh, the entire British class structure. In, uh, in it's one. such a brilliant song. I mean, it really, yeah. you can just dissect those lyrics, you know, forever. It's so funny, so cleverly written. I've just never nails it. Of it, but I do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember the exact, exactly where I was, what I was doing. I just dropped my wife at the train station to take a train back from Boston, from Boston back to New York. It was five o'clock in the morning, and I was listening to WFNX, and this song came on, and I was in the worst mood. We had just had a bit of an argument, and I listened to it, and I listened to it, and I just kept thinking, this, this song doesn't end. This song keeps going. And it keeps getting smarter and better and more interesting. And I couldn't wait to, to the record stores open so I could go get it. Um, and that was, you know, I don't remember having that many epiphanies uh, in terms of music. You know, I remember loving certain songs or hearing certain songs for the first time. But I don't remember thinking this is going to be one of my favorite songs of all time the first time I ever heard something in the way that I did with uh, Common People. So. Well, and I'll say too, early on, you, you kind of had mentioned that a lot of these bands and, and songs that we're discussing today were, were big. And so you never felt the need to kind of, uh, you know, spoon feed or, or, or proselytize. You know, proselytize. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I will say in reverse order, just as much as I, you know, sort of made you 
listen to uh, Radiohead the Benz post um, Pablo Honey because it just was that good. This is an album I'm glad you did um, push push my way because, you know, I, I think being a little uh, weary of, of the clean kind of synthy British sound at the time, um, I just, uh, you know, it took me a minute to kind of catch on, let's say. I love the sound of, of Common People, but I hadn't really sat down with his album. And, and when I did, I mean... You know, it, it is an album. Out of all of the albums we've talked about, with the exception probably of the Benz, I go back to this album more than anything else on the list that we discussed. And, um, you mean, know, we didn't mention, you know, one of my favorite songs on the album, Sorted for Ease and Wiz, which is yeah. one of, like, the most brilliant songs on, on rave culture and, and uh, you know, being out lost in a field. Um, yeah, it's just... It's so it, funny and, and poppy and, and catchy at the same time, which is hard to do. But it also just, I mean, it, there's a feeling there. Like, you know that feeling. It's, you yeah. know, we, we can all point to uh, at least, um, I mean, I, I won't put a number on it, but we can all point to times when we, you know, when we were at the end of the party and it was like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the deflationary elements are, are pretty grim. Um, you know, the other thing I would, I would uh, say about, um, you know, this, uh, this album, you know, Disco 2000 is a straight up, yeah. you know, robbery, you know, as I accused Elastica earlier of, of uh, stealing directly from Wire. I mean, you know, Pulp is, is uh, you know, straight up lifted the uh, guitar riff from Disco 2000 from Gloria by Laura Branigan. And uh, <laughs> I mean, and it still works. So, um, you know, a testament to great writing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think... Like I said, it, it, I think, too, it's another one like Urban Hymns where a lot of people remember this song and not this album. And I think this album absolutely merits revisitation frequently. And um, I, I give it that. It's the best. Well, uh, it's number one for a reason. And, uh, you know, thanks to Pitchfork for uh, putting together such a fun list to talk about. Let's take a, a quick break. Let's hear... Um, common people and uh and let's uh go from that uh on to what are you listening to and, and putting a song on our never-ending playlist what do you say right. sounds good she came from greece she had the thirst for knowledge she studied sculpture at St. martin's college that's where i caught her eye she told me that the tap was loaded i said my case on my room And then in 30 seconds time, she said, I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. want to sleep with common people. I want to sleep with common people like you. What else could I do? I said, oh, I'll see what I can do. I took her to a supermarket I don't know why but I just started somewhere So it started there I said pretend you got no money And she just laughed and said Oh you're so funny I said yeah I can't see anyone else smiling Are you sure? You wanna live like common people See whatever common people see Wanna sleep with common 
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, or today the Brother, Brother podcast, uh, where we were talking about Britpop, and if you agree, disagree, have thoughts on pitchforks, uh, curatorial practices, and and want to tweet us, we're uh, available at the Brother Pod. Um, check us out at brotherpod.com, and um, we'd love to uh, have you rate and review us on iTunes as well, but, after, you know... Finishing with that little bit of business. Um, what are you listening to these days, Jer? Yeah, so um, I'm going to throw out two things. You know, the first is I, I watched with my wife uh, the HBO miniseries based on the book Big Little Lies. And um, for a, uh, I don't know, it, it sort of encapsulated a lot of the stuff I really hate about Hollywood and, and, um, and you know, big shows of this sort with, with multi massive star casts, you know, I watched the whole thing and, uh, I found it to be kind of an entertaining fun ride. So, um, if you can, you know, hold aside your sort of hypercriticism and you just want to watch a, a beautifully shot, um, kind of brainless, uh, store mystery story with, um, some of the, you know, best actresses of our, our day here. Um, I'm going to recommend it. And uh, I'm not going to say I, I loved it, and I'm not going to say I couldn't rip it apart if I had to, but I, uh, I enjoyed watching it. And then secondly, um, I've been digging on the album uh, Offers by Nehi, a band when I uh, caught um, over the weekend in the upstairs in the Middle East in, in Cambridge, Mass, here in, in Boston. And, um, you know, I I'd heard the band, the Chicago-based band. I liked what I heard after seeing them live, was very, very impressed, put on a, a great show, um, very nice guys. We're going to have them on the pod soon here. And uh, the album is, is definitely a, a thumbs up. So I'm enjoying Offers by Nehi. Cool. Well, I am, um, uh, in the spirit of Britpop, uh, I have been listening to uh, the new Mastodon record. And um, <laughs> I am I, I becoming more and more of a fan of these guys. I really like their first three albums. They're much more metal records, but they're slowly morphing into... Uh, Queens of the you know sort of a Queens of the Stone Age style hard rock band and I'm sure a lot of their core fans aren't in love with the direction I am in love with the direction I think it's great I think um, the uh, you know I, I really like the way they're going uh, with the cleaner vocals and the music's still really heavy and I've been you know it's sort of hard to find a really good hard rock band that that fits these days that doesn't um, you know, that isn't goofy or, or, you know, sort of lyrically, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, stuck in the mud. Um, I really, I think Mastodon's the band and, and it's funny, uh, two quick, uh, mismatch stories as far as, uh, live bands go. Uh, one of the funnier one, two punches I've ever seen live, um, uh, it was, um, Mastodon at, at, uh, Pitchfork Fest, Jeremy and Christian and I, uh, were there years back and it just so happened as the lineup fell I mean someone was gonna have to follow Mastodon who are a fucking mammoth live band they are so good excellent and such great players and just so heavy and the band that followed them on stage was Iron and Wine 
so, you know, put that, but uh, I, which made me recall. Like we were sipping wine during Mastodon and shotgunning beers during Iron <laughs> Wine. Exactly. So. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, just stage dive during the Iron and Wine show. Um, I, uh, which brought me back, speaking, you know, now that we're talking about Britpop, but one of the, I do remember um, being really excited for Suede to come to the States. This is 93. I'm living in New York. And um, I find out Suede's coming to uh, Irving Plaza. And so I get tickets and I show up. And this was back when, you know, really, like, this is, speaks to the fact that Britpop wasn't a fully realized movement yet. Um, Suede wound up um, playing, and their opening act was a band from the Bay Area called Counting Crows. <laughs> uh, so you know, talk about musical mismatches. Um, who you know, I have to give credit. We're a, a pretty fully formed live band. I'm not a fan, but uh, it was just a funny aside that I actually saw the Counting Crows open for Suede at Irving Plaza in 1993. Nice. Well, let's um, let's pop a couple songs on our. Uh, what are we calling this thing these days? The the million the, ten the best one songs, ten the best infinity songs of all time. Uh, <laughs> playlist. So, um, why don't, do you want to go first? Yeah, I think we're going to stick with um, our theme today, uh, Britpop, and I am going to go with the most obvious choice, the thing that we spoke about most, and that's Common People by Pulp, because it should be on every mix ever. No, and I, I fully uh, back that pick, and, and uh, we spoke about it. It needed to be on the list. Thank you for putting it there. And I'm going to go with one that uh, one of the bands that I probably pushed back against the most um, in the Britpop world and, and, you know, it's the song that actually hooked me with them and, and helped me realize kind of the brilliance of, of the album. What's the story of morning glory. And that's the song roll with it. Not, not probably everyone's favorite, but it's, uh, my favorite off that one. It's a pretty great song and it does announce the arrival of the biggest, one of the biggest albums in the history of, of, uh, British music. So, um, that's good. Let's, uh, let's stop talking about Britpop and, um, you know, we can we can re-establish our our uh, patriotism. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go have a coke and a hot dog. And, nice. Uh, I'll see you next week. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Brother 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 Podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you for listening.